Provider Solutions and Development, a community of experts dedicated to offering holistic career coaching to physicians and clinicians throughout the entire job search. Start the conversation today at psdrecruit.org forward slash JN podcast. From the JAMA Network, this is JAMA Clinical Reviews, interviews and ideas about innovations in medicine, science, and clinical practice. Here's your host, Ed Livingston. Every year in July, a new crop of interns start to work and all other residents advance a year. Transitioning from medical student to intern is a scary proposition. There's so much to know and many mistakes can be made and they can have real consequences. Amidst the seemingly endless amount of material one should know is a smaller, more manageable list of 10 things every doctor should know. We published three prior episodes on this topic in July and this completes the discussion about 10 new things new doctors should know about drugs. Let's meet our expert. So my name is Dave Yerlink. I'm an internist and uh, head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Toronto. You tweeted a list of 10 things that new doctors should know that's gotten quite a lot of attention. And we looked at the list and thought, these are really good points. So could you kind of run the list and tell us what it is that you're advising new doctors to know about and tell us what all of it means? Yeah, sure. I, I guess the first point I'd make is that you could probably ask, you know, 10 doctors to come up with a list of drug-related things and you'd get, uh, you know, probably get 100 different issues. I, these are just things that I see in the course of my clinical practice and in our consult service fairly often. Sometimes we get called to the emergency department or the psychiatry ward or ICU to see a patient who has altered mental status and elevated temperature. And the question is, is it is, is this serotonin syndrome or is this neuroleptic malignant syndrome, NMS? Or sometimes we get asked about anticholinergic delirium. So these are things that have some overlap. They've got neuromuscular features. They've got altered mental status. They've got elevated body temperature. And, uh, you know, and it's something that people might go through an entire three or four years of residency without ever seeing. So the point was simply to help people realize how easy it is to actually distinguish these from each other. And like most clinical problems, it starts with the history. And the history, in terms of divining serotonin syndrome, which is the old Libby Zion story from years ago, or NMS, which is a tough diagnosis to make sometimes, it's first of all asking about what drugs are they on because NMS tends to be caused by antipsychotics. And serotonin syndrome tends to be caused by usually an overdose of a, of a single an SSRI-type drug or a combination of drugs that augment serotonin transmission by different mechanisms. And so once you get the drug history, then you get the timing history. And serotonin syndrome typically, you know, goes from zero to 60 in a matter of, you know, hours, whereas NMS can fluctuate over days or even weeks, waxing and waning. And so between the temporal sequence of the illness and the drugs the person was on, you can typically, uh, you can get pretty close to, to knowing which of these two entities it is. And I also linked sort of an auxiliary tweet to a case from a a few months ago, we saw a patient who had profound serotonin syndrome with showing the, the, the hyperreflexia and clonus that goes along with that. Before you move on, could you explain a little bit more about those two syndromes? Because I think a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with them. Yeah. So there, so serotonin syndrome is an entity that um, it, it's potentially, these are both potentially fatal illnesses. Serotonin syndrome is an entity that we see either in people who have taken a large amount of of a serotoninergic drug, and usually an SSRI, or sometimes they've combined drugs 
that increase serotonin transmission by different mechanisms. Uh, someone might have taken, you know, uh, we don't see much MAO inhibitors anymore, but St. John's wort can act as an MAO inhibitor. So someone might be on an SSRI, uh, you know, peroxetine, fluoxetine, you name it, and go to the drugstore and take some St. John's wort. Or maybe in hospital, they'll get given linezolid, an antibiotic that also blocks monoamine oxidase. And so the end result of that is that they've got far more serotonin in their synapses than, than they can deal with. And so that presents in a uh, typically a fairly acute way with mental status changes, agitation, sometimes seizures. The patients typically have um, marked hyperreflexia and uh, they're often very jittery. Their temperature can be, you know, um, 102, 103, very easily. And, it, and it's relatively acute, but it shares with the hyperthermia and the mental status changes, it shares those features with neuroleptic malignant syndrome. NMS, on the other hand, it's a spectrum disorder that waxes and wanes. But when people have the, the full presentation, they've got altered mental status, they've got hyperthermia, they've got increased muscle tone, very often profound rigidity, and they've got autonomic instability. That's the fourth one. And that's, that's tough to divine sometimes because, you know, blood pressure is high or it's low, it's, it's, you, know, you have to kind of be really watching and trending to have a, st- a sense of whether they have the, the autonomic instability there. So, so that entity, NMS, is most often seen in people who are taking antipsychotic drugs, um, dopamine blockers. And you know, the, longer, the, the more they've, they're on, the longer they've been on them, the, the greater the risk is here. And so that's, um, that's a tough diagnosis to make in its early stages as it evolves in sort of the week or two after, say, you know, a, a dose is increased or a new drug is added. And I've been impressed. I've probably seen, I don't know, not maybe a dozen or so cases over, over the years. It's not very common, but I've been impressed at how they can fluctuate. So you might see them at nine in the morning and they're talking to you and they're not that rigid and you see them at three in the afternoon and they're mute uh, or they're agitated and you just cannot bend their, their knee or, or their arm. So there, these two entities are primarily caused by psychotropic drugs, and they are sometimes difficult to discern from each other. And that was the point uh, of this tweet, to sort of helping people use the history in terms of the medication history and the chronology of the illness to sort of get you closer to the diagnosis. You mentioned that Libby Zion had the SSRI syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Libby Zion, for those who, d- who don't know the story, I think she was 18 or so, and she died in uh, the early 80s, I want to say 1984, in New York City. And uh, she, it's been a while since I've read the, uh, the book, The Girl Who Died Twice, but, but she died as a consequence of serotonin syndrome. She was on an MAO inhibitor, I want to say phenylzine, drug we don't use much anymore, and was given meperidine or Demerol in hospital. And I think she might have also had cocaine in her system, but she developed profound hyperthermia, uh, I think seizures, and died shortly after coming to hospital. And her father, who was a prominent journalist in New York, sued the doctors in the hospital involved in the case. And as I recall, again, it's a while now, but one of the arguments put forth by the defendant physicians was, well, you know, we knew about this entity. We knew it was called hyperparaxic crisis back then. We knew that you weren't supposed to combine meperidine and MAO inhibitors, but, you know, we'd been working for, you know, 30 or whatever hours it was, and we were had too many patients to look after. I think there it was that case... The death of that young woman from serotonin syndrome helped, and any attention that that case brought, helped put some scrutiny on house staff working hours. And it's one of the reasons why we rarely see people, you know, doing one and two call for, you know, a week at a time anymore. So the fourth one 
pertains to the treatment of pain. And, uh, and in, it, in this one, I, I link to a publication by some colleagues of mine in the emergency medicine literature that talks about the different options that are out there for the treatment of pain. Because I think you know, most of us have a fairly, I don't mean this in a, in a critical way, but we have a fairly, we start with acetaminophen or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And if those don't work, we'll very often we'll add, a, you know, we'll add a, an opioid. Uh, and sometimes we'll go right to the, the opioid because we're, we think that CMF is not going to help and we are worried about the side effects of NSAIDs, which is, you know, it's obviously fair that all these drugs have side effects. The point about this was that I think we are sometimes a little too limited in the options that we, we, we we've got more options than we tend to realize. And I, I like to, when I, I'll ask a resident or a medical student, we'll have a patient who comes in with an acute painful syndrome, say a lumbar radiculopathy, and they'll reflexively want to use hydromorphone because that's what our culture has grown over the last two decades to do, to use opioids. And I'll ask the question, I'll say, so what are you trying to do? And they'll say, well, I'm trying to relieve the patient's pain. And I'll say, okay, that's good, but what are you really trying to do? And it's, and it's when they get that question, they, they, they see there's a bit of a trick question that's coming. It's not really a trick question, but they tend to focus on, well, I want to improve function. I want to improve quality of life. I want to help want to make them more comfortable. We focus all the time on the benefits of the pain medicine or you know, whatever entity we're treating, in this case, pain. And I think that's, that's only part of the equation. If you accept the fact, and it is a fact, that all of the analgesics you might use for a patient in hospital have potential benefits and potential harms, then the real answer, of course, to what you're trying to do is you're trying to afford, afford the patient more benefit harm. It's something that it's so obvious it shouldn't need to be said, but I think it does. And so the the additional tools that I link to in this instance, in this tweet here, whether it's ketamine or lidocaine or um, you know cannabinoids, you know, de- uh, depending on you know where you're practicing. Every time you try to relieve pain, you're actually conducting a little experiment, a little patient level experiment, and the goal of that experiment is trying to impart more more benefit than harm. And it's just easier to do that when you use agents that don't have a lot of harm. And of all of these, I singled out in the tweet, I singled ketamine in particular, because ketamine at doses of 0.1 or 0.2 or 0.3 mg per kilo given over like 15 minutes is remarkably effective in not everybody, but when it works, it's fantastic. And when it doesn't work, you've conducted an experiment, it's failed, it's not been a big deal. You really don't hurt people with small doses of ketamine. Whereas we, and we'll get to this later in the thread, we, we do that very easily. We cause a lot more harm than we think when we get to drugs like opioids. So um, the, the point of this tweet, this uh, number four, was to hopefully discourage people from having a simplistic approach to pain where it's, you know, Tylenol, NSAIDs, and opioids. There, there are other drugs out there, and, and that's sort of the overall philosophy, in my view, of, of treating pain. I built into that a comment on weak opioids, codeine and tramadol, because I think there's this perception out there that they're somehow safer. So these are both, both of these drugs are just pharmacologically irrational. We're all comfortable with codeine, right? And I'm not saying that these drugs can't work. They can sometimes get the job done. But, but codeine's a weird drug. Codeine doesn't do anything. Codeine is inert. For codeine to affect analgesia, it has to be converted by the liver uh, into morphine. Uh, the enzyme that does that called CYP2D6, doesn't really matter, but the point is that the enzyme that does that varies from person to person. 7% of Caucasians don't have any, and you give them 60 of codeine, and they will get zero of morphine, and they'll get no analgesia whatsoever. 
other people have duplications of the gene that encodes for CYP2D6, and they'll turn codeine into morphine fairly efficiently. But the bottom line is when you give somebody a known dose of codeine, what you're really doing is giving them an unknown dose of morphine. So, you know, I know it's got different constraints on its use than codeine does, but, you know, it only makes sense. If you, if you want to give somebody an opioid, morphine makes a whole lot more sense than codeine because codeine is really, it's unpredictable. Tramadol, just quickly, I, I linked to a blog post I wrote on tramadol. Um, it's, it's got the same issue as codeine in that tramadol itself is converted to an opioid by the same pathway. So, you know, some people will get opioids, some won't. But tramadol, the parent compound, is actually an SNRI, like venlafaxine. And so in addition to the variability in response to codeine, you get a lot of other side effects with tramadol that people sometimes, they're not common, but, you know, you get seizures or serotonin syndrome sometimes, especially when tramadol is combined with uh, antidepressants. Yeah, but once in a while you get hypoglycemia. So to me, tramadol is a drug that we're just better off not using. You know, I, I only use it in people who come in on it and they're doing okay, and I'm not going to upset their particular apple cart and stop the drug. I'll, I'll continue it while they're under my care. But, but again, if you want to start somebody on an analgesic, if you want to start an, someone on an opioid, it makes sense to prescribe an opioid, not some drug like codeine or tramadol that's converted to an opioid in an unpredictable fashion. The fifth point, this is probably the commonest consult we get in our Clin Farm service, and it pertains to, you know, we get called about a rash. The patient's got an exanthem, and sometimes it's just a simple exanthem. The patient's, they've been on a drug, they've got a rash, they've got nothing else. That's not usually a big deal, but once in a while, and I would say at least once a week, we get called about somebody who's got a generalized rash, and they've got a temperature. I, I tend to, I speak in Celsius, so we'll say 38 and a half, 39. But, you know, in, in Fahrenheit, I'm guessing 103, 104. These are high. These are often quite elevated. And, and so we tend to think, well, it's a rash and a fever. Is it a virus? Or, you know, is it a amount of vasculitis sometimes? We sometimes lose sight of the fact that this can be a reaction to drugs. And, and it's easy to lose sight of the fact that it's drug-related because it's delayed. You know, so if you take your penicillin at, uh, Monday morning, and then an hour later, you're covered in hives and you're wheezing. You don't need to be Osler to sort of figure out that that was a drug reaction. And if you take your Ramipril, and an hour later or two hours later, you got you know some angioedema. Again, it's easy to make that connection between the drug and the and the adverse event. In in this case, people might have been on patient might have been on the drug for three or four or five or six weeks, and so it's harder to invoke the drug as the explanation for the patient's problem. So, you know, we probably see this most often with antibiotics and, and beta-lactams and sulfonamides and vancomycin and sometimes quinolones would be up there or anticonvulsants or non-steroidals or allopurinol. But the typical story is someone starts these drugs and they do okay for the first week or two and then they come to hospital or they're seen by a physician, you know, somewhere and they're, they've got a fever, they've got a rash and, and sometimes, you know, we, we collect the med list, we don't look at the chronology of the drugs, and we sort of lose sight of the fact that, in fact, you know, they they started the, uh, I don't know, phenytoin or carbamazepine, you know, 21 days ago. And, and sometimes I think we exonerate the drug because they tolerated it for so long. So the point of this tweet was to remind people that drug reactions are sometimes very delayed, and they can be a month and a half or sometimes even more. And that makes the diagnosis tough. And so rather than just asking, is this measles, which is a question in 2019, we have to ask, 
um, you might want to ask about the drugs and, and, and dig into the drugs, not just the drug lists, but the history of the drugs and, and when the patient was started on them. The, uh, the sixth point has to do with the interaction between acetaminophen and warfarin, paracetamol for people who are listening outside of North America. And I link in this tweet to a thread I did maybe a year or two ago on the interaction. We don't see as much warfarin as we used to because people are now on you know, rivaroxaban and apixaban and, and vigatran and so on. But you know, warfarin is still uh, enjoys a fair bit of use, as do in other countries other vitamin K antagonists like acetacumarol. So I don't know how much you want me to unpack this interaction. It's kind of a pointy-headed one. But the, point, the, point, the key point to take away is that in patients on warfarin, the addition of a couple of grams, two, three, or certainly four grams of warfarin can cause an abrupt increase in the INR. It affects some people and not others. We know why it happens, but because acetaminophen is in everyone's medicine cabinet, and you know, people don't maybe mention the fact that they took some Sinutab or some Tylenol, you know, it's very easy to go from an INR of two and a half to an INR of seven and be oblivious to the fact that it was just the, the Tylenol that the person, the acetaminophen the person took in their in their Vicodin or Percocet or Sinutab or whatever it was they took that did this. So I don't know how much you want to unpack that interaction further, but it's but this really is more about raising awareness. I think this is one of the most dangerous interactions out there because I historically was a pharmacist actually for five years, and I thought nothing in the early 90s of telling patients who came in on warfarin, you can't take ibuprofen and you can't take ASA because that's going to you know increase your risk of bleeding, but go ahead and take acetaminophen. And it was not good advice. I mean, it's not that you can't combine acetaminophen with warfarin. It's that in some people, when you add acetaminophen to a patient who's stable on warfarin, the INR will balloon, and sometimes that causes trouble. The seventh point, this is again a bit of a, a subspecialty thing, but it has to do with sulfonylureas and hypoglycemia. So drugs like gliburide and uh, glycoside and glenepiride, we, we, we see them less than we used to, but we still see them. Patients who come into hospital with hypoglycemia on these drugs are notoriously, it's, it's easy to treat in one sense, and you give them, some, give them some D50 and they get better. But if that's all you do and you put them on a D10 drip, you know, what happens is they, you, they get, you know, the doctor on call will get paged every couple of hours because the sugar is down, again, I'm speaking in SI units, two or three millimoles per liter. I'm not sure. What's the reference, what's the, what's the reference range for glucose in the U.S.? It's about 90 to 120, I think, is normal. Okay, so, so imagine you're on call and you've got one of these patients and you're, you get repeated calls through the night because the sugar is 30 or 40 or 50. And we tend to react to that by giving more glucose. And that, it's fair enough that that pulls the patient out of you know, seizure land. But it's important to realize that we have, a, we have an almost miraculous antidote available to us that's pretty inexpensive and it works perfectly. It's called octreotide. And I'll just explain why this happens. So, so, so fulmineurias work by telling the pancreas to squirt out more insulin. And they do that especially well when the blood sugar is high. And so if it's, of course, appropriate in the seizing patient or the, you know, the patient who's you know, confused with a blood sugar of 30 to, uh, to give them some glucose and get them out of trouble, but then the pancreas sees that and says, well, you need some more insulin and, and the, you, you will get rebound hyperinsulinemia in response to that bolus of glucose and you'll be chasing your tail all night long you know, with, with hypoglycemia and then hyperglycemia and so on. Octreotide, on the other hand, just turns off pancreatic insulin secretion. It's a somatostatin analog. You give 100 mics IV for an adult and you're good for at least eight hours. 
and it's sort of it's pharmacologically elegant as opposed to just you know piling sugar into the patient and risking hypoglycemia you know through the course of an evening. You know you give some glucose up front, some octreotide to turn off the process, and the patient's usually fine. Um, and so it's uh, it's one of those one of those little tricks of the trade that people might not encounter because you know we don't see a lot of this entity, but when you've used it once, you're a fan. The eighth one is on the potential of trimethoprim, which is one of the components of Bactrim or Septra, depending where you practice, to cause hyperkalemia. Here again, I link to a thread from a year or so ago, and we've actually done several studies on on this exact entity. So, so trimethoprim is not only an antibiotic, it's actually a potassium-sparing diuretic. You know, we think of it as an antibiotic, but when you give it to patients, it causes the loss of sodium and water in the urine and causes the retention of potassium. That's not usually a big deal in a 30-year-old with a UTI who gets a prescription for Bactrim. But take somebody who's 70 and has systolic heart failure and is on spironolactone or eplerinone, and they're on an ACE inhibitor, and maybe they've got diabetes, and maybe they've got a creatinine, an EGFR of 20 or 30, that person is a sitting duck for hyperkalemia when you add on a drug like Bactrim or trimethoprim. And so the point about this tweet was simply to raise awareness. I think Bactrim is a great drug. It's got all kinds of uses, and it's cheap, and it's got plenty of side effects too. But I'm very wary uh, of it in people who are, you know, They've got, they got a single nephron left spitting out potassium and because of the other drugs and comorbidities they've got. And we come along and we add trimethoprim. And I've seen, I've got a great ECG from years ago of a patient who, you know, came to hospital just feeling weak and had a sine wave ECG. And my colleague saved the patient's life recognizing what the ECG was, was that of terminal hyperkalemia, K was 9.9. And it was the proximate cause in that case was a well-intentioned prescription for uh, a UTI with a uh, backdrop. So this is one about raising awareness. The ninth has to do with the prescribing of drugs that can cause withdrawal. And here I single out benzos and opioids and baclofen and a few, a clonidine and a few others. You know, pretty much any drug that works in the central nervous system has the potential to cause physical dependence. So and what that I mean, you know, the neural adaptations that take place in the days after the drug has started. Use a post-op patient, for example. Someone's got a, you know, a surgical procedure. They go home. They're on opioids for five or seven days. They're taking the equivalent of, we'll say, six to eight Percocet tablets a day. And then they stop. And when they stop, this affects different people differently, but they'll develop withdrawal. Withdrawal is the correlative of the physical dependence that the drug caused in the central nervous system. It doesn't happen with NSAIDs. It doesn't happen with acetaminophen. But it certainly happens with opioids. And so, and it manifests again differently from patient to patient. Some patients have horrible insomnia. Some patients have horrible recurrence of their pain. Some people just have classic opioid withdrawal symptoms with abdominal pain and, and, and diarrhea, and they feel miserable. And what's important about that is that it's quickly apparent to the patient when they resume the drug that all those symptoms go away. And because the withdrawal manifests as, for example, pain, I think this is one of the reasons why for a post-operative, there's been a lot of literature in the last few years on how new persistent opioid use is probably the commonest complication after elective surgery. Major, minor surgeries, there are patients who, you know, 7, 8, 12%, depending on the series you look at, of patients who come into hospital 
and they're not on opioids, and they get appropriately started on opioids postoperatively, are still on them at three months or six months down the road. And I think part of the reason for that is because of the dependence that these drugs can cause and the withdrawal that ensues when the person tries to taper the dose too quickly. So the point about this tweet was to make people just reflect a little bit on the potential for dependence and withdrawal with drugs that are often very, very useful. Benzos and opioids and all all of these drugs have appropriate places in medicine, but we shouldn't be starting them without a plan for eventually stopping them unless we are going to commit a priori to having the patient on a lifetime of therapy. And the the last one was on the urine drug screen. This is is the toxicologist in me. We get a lot of patients coming to hospital and they'll almost reflexively get a urine drug screen done. And and I'm here talking about the immunoassays. It's a panel of typically five different things. It looks for cocaine and THC and amphetamines and opiates and sometimes benzos. And these are done very often in hospitals, but they they are just so prone to false positives and false negatives. And um, and they really they can sometimes mislead clinicians as to what's going on. They they cost money. They they waste time. And I I think they're it's not that screening the urine for drugs has no role in clinical care, but you know, there's never, to my knowledge, ever ever been a study that shows that in a patient who's got some presentation to the emergency department and they're agitated, for example, that this kind of screening offers anything else above and beyond a history and a physical exam try and help you identify what the patient's got going on. And sometimes, as I say, it misleads you. You see that there's, I don't know, THC in the urine or benzos in the urine, and there's a tendency among clinicians to to perceive that as useful information. It might be completely useless. I mean, if it's THC, it might have been exposure from two weeks ago or three weeks ago, depending on the chronicity of use. So uh, I think I was joking when I issued this tweet. It said something to the effect of, you know, before ordering a urine drug screen, put the index finger of your dominant hand in a stapler and press down firmly. It was simply meant to make people reflect on whether this is a test that was really going to be of any use to, you know, helping them care for the patient. And that was the, those were the 10 tweets. I got a variety of responses and one of them I actually added because I think it was on the issue of pharmacists. And I think uh, I, I practiced for five years, as I mentioned before, and I think that younger clinicians, they probably, I think they need this bit of advice less than, say, the more senior folks, people my age and, high, and older. Uh, pharmacists are just an enormous resource for drug-related issues. And when we work in hospitals, we're lucky to work with pharmacists who understand drugs better than we do. And they, they know how to dose drugs properly, and they are better than we are at picking up drug interactions and so on. So one of them, one of the replies said, ask for help and listen to your pharmacist. And, you know, I know my pharmacy department's number off by heart, and I think nothing of when I'm on the wards of just dialing it. And the first pharmacist I speak with, I'll ask, they're just a great resource, and it's, and I think we need to use them and their expertise more than sometimes we do. Yeah, that's that latter point is really uh, important, and I was I I may be older than you actually, and I'm a surgeon, so I don't pretend to know anything about drugs. But my thinking about a lot of these things was I I got enough to know to do what I have to do, let alone trying to know all the other stuff like drugs and how they. So I would very frequently pick up the phone and call pharmacy when I was in clinic and just say, "What's the dose of this drug?" What? <laughs> They're very, very helpful. So I, I completely agree with you. There should be a low threshold to call them in and get help because they, they know a lot about their craft. 
Can I give you the, um, the countervailing experience? So from 90 to 95, when I was in medical school and internship, I, I used to work part-time to sort of pay my bills and pay myself through school. And when I got a prescription, I, I worked in community pharmacies. So I would, you know, I would routinely be faced with something that wasn't clear or, um, you know, a drug interaction or some therapeutic duplication or, or what have you, where I would have to call the physician to clarify. And I would say that most of the time the docs were pretty receptive and appreciative. But once in a while, you'd you'd encounter someone who took offense at the fact that you were con- they were maybe they were irritated or having a bad day or busy or I don't know. But sometimes when a physician is asked a question about a, about an order that he or she has written, they can sometimes, for whatever reason, take it as a bit of an offense. I think that, and I I had colleagues who were in the pharmacy world who were reluctant to call a certain group of doctors, a small clutch of doctors in our neighborhood because of, they were just notoriously irritable and they, they did not take well to being being phoned. Um, I think that that is less and less prevalent these days. I think people are now working more as a team. But yeah, I think that uh, I think that any any docs who are listening to this should not only feel more empowered to ask the pharmacist for help. Pharmacists love being asked clinical questions, but they should also be mindful of the fact, just like, just like when the nurse calls them, that when the pharmacist calls them about, about an issue, that uh, it's the sort of thing that they should take seriously and be appreciative that they're being asked and being involved in a, a collaborative way. Yeah, my on a, on a similar note, when I counseled interns who were just starting this time of year, for uh, many years ago, I would tell them that when an ICU nurse calls you with some kind of question about a very sick patient, and that nurse has probably been there in the ICU for 10 or 15 or 20 years, the best response you can give them is, what do you think I should do? And then just do it because they know what needs to be done and you don't, even though you're the doctor. I, I, I <laughs> exactly that, that myself as a, an intern in a PGY two and three. And uh, yeah, it's, there's, there are a few things more helpful to a physician in training than a, an experienced nurse. Dr. Yearling has 10 items all doctors should know about. We covered a few of them in previous podcasts, which were on penicillin allergy, PPIs and acute kidney injury, and SSRI problems. In this podcast, Dr. Yearling completes his list of 10 with more detail about SSRI syndrome and how it played out in the infamous Libby Zion event. It is important to know that if someone is on monoamine oxidase inhibitors or on older antipsychotics, that if they present with altered mental status, hyperthermia, increased muscle tone, and profound rigidity, consider SSRI syndrome. Another point is to not forget about using ketamine to treat acute pain. In many ways, it's a much better drug than any opioid. Know that rashes can be related to a drug, even if that person has been taking the drug without any problems for a while. Also know that if a patient has been on a sulfonylurea drug and has persistent hypoglycemia, think about using octreotide to treat it. Acetaminophen and warfarin interact. Don't give these together. Bactrim and Spectra have trimethoprim, and it can cause hyperkalemia. Sure, everybody knows that opioids can result in withdrawal, but so can benzos. When trying to determine if a patient is having a drug reaction, don't bother with a urine tox screen. It's not all that helpful. Lastly, when in doubt, call a pharmacist. I'd like to thank Dr. David Yearling from the University of Toronto for sharing his thoughts about what doctors should know about drugs, especially when they're first starting to practice. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Morrow. Once again, I'm Ed Livingston, Deputy Editor for Clinical Reviews and Education for JAMA. Thanks for listening.